This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this dog and bone, we invited two heavyweights of the advertising industry festival business into the ring for a little gentle sparring. Phil Thomas has been running the legendary annual extravaganza of the Cannes Lions since 2006, first as chief executive, then recently as chairman. He also runs the Dubai Lynx Festival. Phil is also CEO of the events division of parent company Essential PLC. Early in his career, he was a journalist, editor and publisher, running titles such as FHM, Shots and Broadcast. Matt Schechner is the impresario behind the festival series Advertising Week, which he started in New York City in 2004. Before that, he ran his own sports and entertainment consultancy, where he got the bug for starting events and making things happen. Advertising Week Europe came to London in 2013, and since then it's rolled into Tokyo, Sydney, Mexico City, and next, Johannesburg. Matt is a popular figure in the UK scene and has made many friends since he parked his tank on the UK ad industry lawn seven years ago. And Phil started the talk by asking Matt how he got the title Lord that he uses in his emails. When you sign off your emails, you sign it off as Lord Schechner. Yes, indeed. Are you, are you actually a Lord? Yes, Phil. As an American, I cannot be a sir, but you can be a Lord. And I'm 54 now. Four years ago, on the occasion of my 50th, there was a surprise party for me here at the Duke of Wellington Arch in Hyde Park. There's a beautiful little space at the top of the arch where you can do something very small and private. Not a lot of folks know there's a space up there. And in the middle of the dinner, which was a gathering of all of our friends and family who helped us get Advertising Europe off the ground here in London, there was a surprise ceremony and I was presented with various documents, and I was made a lord. And my wife, of course, is terribly embarrassed by the whole thing. None of my American friends or colleagues know what to make of it. But if you were granted that title, I'm sure you would use it also. And do you get, and, like, do you, do you get a stately home and uh, 400 acres no of land. Sussex? Or? I have no, no land. But um, I can usually get into most restaurants pretty easily. Yeah, that's great. Great story. I, so, I didn't know that yeah, story. Very, very humbling and very flattering. Yeah, fantastic. But we're here. I mean, uh, I'd you're coming up. I think you're in your, you were telling me you're in your year seven. Yeah, year seven. And New York, of course, you've been running for a while before that 16. Yes. You're in 16th year. And you've got events all over the world. Maybe we'll just start with, we're both event guys, right? So I've got. Dubai Links coming up yep. next week, and then the week after that, I've got one of my other events in the fintech space that takes place in Singapore. What's your feeling about where we are with events globally as a business proposition? Are you still 100% behind the, the, the theory of events? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think to some degree it's only gotten more important. You know, when we began in New York in 04, the world was completely different. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was a college student on the Harvard campus. We were four years away from YouTube. We were a couple years away from the iPhone. A lot of the other companies that are now dominant in our industry did not exist in any form. You know, a lot of the other players, certainly the whole 
explosion of the streaming business. You know, we were long, long way away from that. Netflix was a very different business. They weren't even in business then. And the early business, as you recall, was mailing DVDs. So the world is very different. As the digital revolution has picked up steam and really taken hold of, you know, the entire, you know, business world beyond our business, as humans, that experience has only gotten more important. And I think it's why, you know, the live entertainment business, if you look at their growth and you look at, you know, Live Nation continues to grow and AEG continues to grow. And I think, you know, the business of the West End here in London or Broadway in New York, you know, they've never been selling more tickets. And some of that, of course, is, you know, great shows. But some of it also is that as humans, you crave that communal experience. But you and I are, you know, share something. We're sort of in the navigation business, right? At end of day, what people want is they want to hear from smart people about how that can be more successful. But I think you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to events, because you can hear from interesting people online, but there's Mm -hmm. something very human. I agree that word human, Mm -hmm. our desire firstly to be in a tribe. And that's, you know, to the good and to the bad, as we know. But but that tribal instinct. And then it's just people want to be together, don't they? So if you give them the opportunity to be together, they often take that opportunity, don't they? Yeah, it's the flip side of the coin where so much of our time is spent buried in our phones, our tablets, our heads down. You know, we've all gotten caught walking behind people who are in the middle of doing something and they have that, you know, walking, texting, you know, fog. The flip side of that is that communal, you know, experience. And I think as humans, we crave that you know, more than ever. Yeah, I mean, I used to be in magazines. I was in magazines for many years. I started as a journalist and uh, editor of magazines. And I realized at one point that that medium was un- going to be under unbelievable pressure because the delivery mechanism was going to change and, right. the, and the model was going to change. Right. And so I looked around and I tried to work out what I thought would have more longevity. And I decided that events did have that longevity because of exactly the reason you're saying. I think they're incredibly strong. But that doesn't mean, I suppose, that we haven't got business challenges, especially in the industry that we serve, because we're at the centre, really, in a way, of our own industry, advertising, marketing, that that sort of thing. How are you finding... Adweek Europe, what's the, what's the bellwether that it's telling you about the state of the industry right now? You know, we're subject to whatever's going on in the real world you know, beyond our industry. So, you know, the climate over here of uncertainty, you know, for all the obvious reasons and timing. I mean, our event is about a week before the current March 29 actual Brexit date. So, you know, some of our content is reflective of that. A lot of our content is reflective of what's going on more broadly. You know, as our platform has grown we've really been able to figure out a way to leverage it to talk about things that transcend our industry that are arguably as or more important. So, you know, for example, in New York a couple months ago, we had Emma Stone on stage and she wasn't there to talk about her latest film or television project. She was there to talk about her experience growing up as a young girl, you know, with anxiety and was on stage with a group called the Child Mind Institute, which is the leading advocate for young people's mental health. In the last couple of years, I'm sure you've had content around, you know, work-life balance, health and wellness. You know, that's become very much in vogue as a topic. And, you know, I remember when I was a kid, 
if somebody was sick and had cancer, nobody wanted to say it out loud, right? People would whisper, cancer, you know? And it used to be that no one wanted to talk about mental health. And the first step towards, and this is a good way to normalize, you know, conversation. So when we have her on stage, when we had the Surgeon General of the United States on stage with Nikki Six talking about the opioid crisis, when we had Vice President Al Gore here in London talking about the environment, you know, that we're able to leverage the Advertising Week platform to talk about those issues, as well as political issues like Brexit and the image of Brand Britain, which is taking a hit, certainly America in the age of Trump. You know, it's a different ballgame now. Some people love what's happening. A lot of people don't love what's happening. I shouldn't think many people listening to this podcast love what's happening. Really, I would I? think not. But I would think not. You know, people do ask us why why we have certain people speaking, like uh, Will Smith or, you know, whoever it might be, Helen Mirren or Ridley Scott. And what we find at our event is that, to your point, people are actually very interested in the wider world and the wider picture. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're a festival of creativity. So I think our two events do a slightly different job for our business, for our industry. And we're a festival of creativity. And what that means, I think, for us is that people want to hear from experts in creativity, no matter what that what their specialism is. And now it can backfire. You know, mm -hmm. we've had some absolute classics where we've had actors on the stage and it's just been a you know, what are they doing here? Right. They've got nothing to say for themselves. It's been a disaster. You don't know and you don't know until they've been on the stage, to be honest, do you? Whether they're gonna add any value. But the ones that do add value, I think, are giving their perspective on creativity and, and as you say, other subjects that are very interesting to our to our audience. And that's why we invite these people to speak, right? Yeah, I think, you know, we're our value propositions are are, you know, very, very different. But I think what we share is that creative platform that you have is a pretty big canvas to paint on. You can use all, you know, 64 colors in the big Crayola box with that platform. Our platform purposefully has no singular theme. And even the people that know us very well will say, what's the theme this year? And the answer is there is no theme and there never has been. And I think that allows us to sort of hand curate you know, each program that we do, and there were six this year between Mexico City, London, Tokyo, Sydney, New York, and our first year in Q4, we're launching in Johannesburg for Africa, which we're very excited about. And so what we do is something that is reflective of the timely, and most of that is technology-driven. So, you know, five years ago, neither one of us was talking about AI, data and analytics, you know, meant something very different. Trust and transparency meant something very different. You know, the old definition of trust was, can you trust your advertising? You know, now trust and transparency means something very, very different. So those things are all, you know, in the timely, largely technology driven, and then the timeless. You know, when you hear from somebody like Will Smith, who we had in New York as well, and, you know, that's just inspirational. Yeah, you exactly. You know, to hear from somebody like that. And I think people want to be inspired. You know, they want to be enlightened. They want to be engaged. They want to hear from people that are just interesting. It's a know? really fine line, though, isn't it? Because you can get it, you can get it wrong if the, if, if the person hasn't got a clear idea who the audience is, if they don't know exactly why they're there, if they're not trying to give a message yeah. to you. It can, it can definitely You know, a little bit of show business, you know, as long as it sits on that foundation that's grounded in, if you, if you can meet that threshold, they say, this is thought leadership. Yeah. I mean, and what, then some of that sparkle on top, 
I think adds a little bit of something. I don't know whether you agree with this as well. I think the other thing about events, when they are successful often is because the industry they're serving is under immense change and transformation, right? So I just, you know, Can Lines has been going 60, 50, 64 years. I haven't been running it that long, Matt, obviously. You looked very good for a 64, Phil. But... I sometimes think we it would know it just would be impossible for it to be as big as it is now 30 years ago because 30 years ago all it did was look at advertising and mm -hmm. all advertising was was is it going to be TV radio cinema yeah. outdoor or print and that was it and really it's grown I think can lines has grown I don't know whether you'd agree with this in your with your events it's grown largely because of the incredible disruption which brings two things first is it brings people wanting to know the answer to try and find the answer to your mm -hmm. point earlier on and also it just again it just brings in so many new customers right so well, if i look at our customer set now it's 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 just completely transformed from what it was even five years ago listen there are more players and a lot of the old geographic boundaries are no longer in place right one of my dear friends and an early mentor of mine who i got to work with really invented the genre of the sports documentary. His name was Bud Greenspan. He had been to every Olympics post-World War II until 2010 in Vancouver. And Bud made all the films about the Olympics for the IOC. And I remember him telling me that, I think it was, was it the Winter Games in Grenoble? Was it in the mm -hmm. late 60s, the Winter Games? And that they would fly the tapes yeah. overnight and then on the CBS News, the, our most famous presenter, anchor we call it, presenter you call it, was Walter Cronkite. He was a legendary newsman in America. And he would read the results on the air from the tape that they had flown over, you know, the day before. So, you know, now not only can you get the results of a race, but you can follow it all live in any sport anywhere in the world. What I'm seeing, I think, is... A lot of disruption for the more traditional agency groups, of course. I mean, their results have been out in the last few weeks, and we can see we can see what's happening. Yep. I don't know what you think, but I personally think the demise of those holding companies, you know, WPP, Publicis, and Omnicom, it's very premature to write those guys off, don't you think? I mean, they're huge organizations. They're, you know, they're professional well, I, I, organizations. You know, listen, you got a lot of terrific people at all at all the top places. You know, the Omnicom family, the IPG family, Michael Roth will be over with us once again on to kick off Advertising Week Europe. He's flown over, I think, every year. Bob Greenberg from RGA will be over. We're very, very happy to have Bob. He was with us on our launch year in 13, uh, and we'll be back this year. Listen, it's become very popular to talk about the demise of the holding companies. And it's been very popular to say that all the great work is coming out of, you know, the small boutique shops. That's not true. No. There's great work, you know, coming out of big shops. You look at the job that Chris McDonald, who's, you know, one of yours from the UK, and has come over and is doing an incredible job at McCann, started in New York and his uh, remit has grown. So I think there are great examples that you can look at of great work being done by big shops. I think the media agencies, have they, have, have they continue to evolve? You know, that whole game has changed. Think about the business of, you know, buying and planning and of media. That business has altered dramatically. 
there were great work being done everywhere. Yeah, I agree. So I, agree. I, I, I think there's don't room think, for, there's I think room for the everybody. business is changing. Yeah. And I think the business models have to change with it. And not all that is pleasant. But um, there are great examples of great work being done on both the creative side and the media side. You know, you look at the job a guy like Kylan Gottlieb does over here for Omnicom. You know, these, these, are, these are force of nature people. And they were doing great work in 92 and 2002 and 2012. And I would bet on them to be doing great work in 2022. So over, over, the peri- over that period of time, the last 16 years or so, has your business model fundamentally well, changed? we, you know... You sort of go where, you know, where the industry goes. So I think the mix of our corporate partners has changed. You know, our first year, and now I can't even remember what the rationale was in 2004, but McDonald's and Kellogg spent money with us. You know, there have been companies that have faded in and out. And, you know, one year might have been very prevalent and, you know, then disappeared. Where it's changed as our geographic mix has changed and grown is we now have a number of global partners. So Google, Facebook, Adobe, Snap, MIQ, a number of those companies now are with us in every market. Verizon uh, Media Group was very prevalent with us in uh, Mexico City just a few weeks ago. So that's different. Companies that are now players in the space that weren't X years ago. Target, which has a huge media business, Hulu, was a very big partner in New York. But our basic recipe, Phil, is the same. I think there are those that are endemic to a local market. There are those that are global. Um, And we draw water from all the different wells. So from brand, from creative, from marketers, media, and of course, technology. You know, our business is not an awards-based business. So our business models are different. But overall, I think the mix of partners has evolved based on the strength of the industry. You know, we've never been really dependent. The agencies are very a big part of our family, but, you know, the agencies save their money, you know, for you. So that's not really a big part of our business model. And our, our cost to attend is very low. So, you know, we're now the largest B2B event in any industry in New York, um, that hasn't been a formal study, so I can't say for sure about London, but we very well could be. We're about 40,000 in London. New York's over 100,000. And we're about 15,000 in Mexico City in our second year a few weeks ago. And I think that's because Advertising Week, we're in markets where the industry already is, where, where the industry is, and it's very much geared for young people as well as the C-suite. Yeah. I don't, I don't think our model has massively changed either over time. The, as you, exactly the same as you say. The, the, the players are slightly different. Yeah, and, and I think you've done a pretty good job growing, looking globally where the growth is, looking at places like Brazil and China mm-hmm. and places like that. Yeah, yeah. Because that, our, Has that changed for you? Well, our model is to have a, one big global event, really, and we've got Dubai Links and Spikes Asia, but they're very, very small compared to Cannes. So our... our our philosophy is to try and have one big global event. And so we have 100 different countries attend. But our model is, you know, 40% awards revenue, 40% attendee revenue, and then the other 20% is sponsorship and activations and then increasingly other revenue streams like our digital We've got a digital repository of all the work, for instance, that we right. sell a sub for. Right. Uh, we're working more with we're working with clients on improving their creative capabilities and that kind of thing. So, right. 
but but it's the the fundamentals of of the of the business model haven't actually changed that much, which I think goes back in a sense to the strength of of an event. You know, if you can curate an event that people are prepared to pay money to attend, then you've got a very strong business model. And as long as you can adapt to that, I think over time. And make sure that you're being as relevant as possible. That that's the key word, isn't it? To be as relevant as you possibly can be. And of course, we've had our ups and downs. I mean, last year was def- definitely a down. Right. We had uh, publicists pull out. That was a big deal for us. Did you know that was coming before it was announced publicly? Did they give you a heads up? Oh yeah, I knew. I knew at least an hour before, Matt. An hour before. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got a call. Could you have a meeting with the publicist guys? And it was over at the Majestic Hotel. It was on the Tuesday of Cannes. Right. And I met with them and it was all their senior people. And they said that uh, they'd made a decision that they were going to take a hiatus for a year and they were going to announce it in about an hour's time. And that was a surprise, to say the least. And then it became... The the problem with it was, from our point of view, is obviously a customer can decide whatever they want to do is their choice. But... The problem was it dominated, because they announced it at Cannes, it dominated that Cannes. Sure, completely. and a French company. Yeah, and a French company, and it was just yeah. a huge, huge news for a really long time. But they're back in now, and that's it, all in the past, and they've, they've done what they needed to do. So, And do you find that you're having to work harder to get them to come back and to get the other holding companies to stay? at the same level of participation? Yeah, we are having to work harder. It's interesting with publicists because we can see what they're doing now with some of our other awards, like we've had Eurobest and we've got Lynx now. And it's like a big tanker. You know, they're not back up to the levels they were before they stopped because it takes time to get into that whole thing. Right. So we'll see what happens at Cannes this year in terms of whether they're back to the previous levels. I suspect they probably won't be, to be honest. And then with the other holding companies, they're under pressure financially, it's a big expense for them and we try, you know, we, we work with them to try and make it as efficient as possible. But the thing is, with the awards, of course, what they need is they need that benchmark and they need to prove they're, they're good. As you said before, you, you haven't got an awards model, but you've, right. you have, you've teamed up with... We did something for a couple of years, yeah, which Mm. we, I think we mutually, with all goodwill, we decided to discontinue. Okay. But we did something around impact, around social responsibility. Why why haven't you ever launched an awards out of interest? Well, Phil, there's an awful lot of them out there. Globally, you know, you're the, uh, you know, you're the Maserati globally, but, you know, in North America where we began, you know, there's, you know, there are a number of creative awards already. And we didn't feel that there was any new territory that we could tread on. I think we just did something in Mexico City with discovery around branded content that was really interesting that we're looking to replicate in other places. And I think the notion of what we have been doing and will continue to do on our own, looking at areas that impact our lives you know, bigger picture. I think that's smart. So, around health and wellness, around yeah. sustainability, around responsible production, around education, around diversity and inclusion. And, you know, a lot of those topics have suddenly, often for a, uh, because out of tragedy, have become more mainstream topics. You know, we've got quite an alumni of people who have spoken at Advertising Week, uh, Harvey Weinstein being one of them. I imagine you've had him in Yeah, Cannes. he has spoken at Cannes, yeah. You know, that has created a lot of conversations around a lot of issues. And I'm very proud that we've been talking about those issues for quite some time. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. 
subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. What we're seeing is the bigger the big entrance into awards as we know are the are the advertise the agencies not just advertising agencies but agencies general generally and they are definitely culling the awards that they want to be yeah. we i am approached probably at least once a month by some award or other globally who wants to be bought or to be partnered with because they're under pressure. Yeah. And even some of the awards that you think are quite, you know, you if I mentioned them, you would know them. Right. You'd be surprised what 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 pressure they're under from a financial perspective. Yeah. And as I, as the as the industry just decides, there we wasn't can't a afford. reason. You know, very early on, somebody that we both know came up to us and said, "You'd be crazy, you know, not to start your own. You know, it's a great business." We just felt that there was no reason mm. that that territory had been very well tread upon. Yeah. And unless or until we found a new piece of land where we could build something that was unique, it wasn't something that we were interested in pursuing. Have you had, as an event organizer, I don't know about you, but when I, I started running Cannes, I'd never run an event before. How, many, year, how many years has it been there? Well, though? I started, so 12 years ago. Right. And I had never run an event before. Right. And also I didn't know anything about the advertising industry. I don't right. know why they gave me the job. For the first couple of years, I found it very stressful. Running right. it, running an event because right. because it is really stressful, and then one year I realised that actually it's not about trying to stop something going wrong. It is actually about just enjoying working out what you're going to do about it when it goes wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's a sort of mental shift that you just. I don't know about you, but in can every day I wake up and I look what's going to happen today that I need to fix. Right, and if you think about it in that way, it doesn't half help your mental state. Do you find that? Have you had well, hairy moments I, I, I running think, the event? You know, it's interesting. Neither one of us actually comes from the advertising industry, which is somewhat ironic. Mm. I think you learn to take bad news well. And at a certain point in you know one's career, you sort of either figure out what you're doing or you're never going to figure it out. And with no arrogance, but with certainly with a little bit of confidence... I think we've learned over the years, you know, my partner Lance and I both share that we can take bad news well. And sometimes you have to audible. And there are things that you plan and control. You know, but when you've got in New York this year, we had, it was 1,300 some odd speakers. London will be seven, 800 this year. So clearly, just <laughs> Someone's on the gonna math, drop out, right? Right, something's not going to go as planned. Something's <laughs> yeah. going to run long. Several years ago, we had Sir Martin on stage with Bernie Eccleston when he was still running Formula One. And it was supposed to be about a half hour. And, you know, Sir Martin is not only a great interviewee, but he's a great interviewer. And Bernie, you know, sort of towards the end of his career, you know, really cantankerous. You know, there was no governor, you know, or PR briefing for him. He's going to say what's on his mind, mm. unfiltered. And it went way long. But the audience was riveted. And it was a decision that we made in real time to let it run as long as they wanted it to. Mm. And it went for almost an hour and 10 minutes. And you know what? For the delegates that were there and those that were watching on the stream around the world, they absolutely loved it. Were the people that were supposed to be on... You know, at four o'clock and five o'clock, did they, they love they, it? They were less no. keen. No, 
<laughs> no. But, you know, in retrospect, that was the right, you know, right decision at that moment in time. The worst moment I had, I think, running can was very early on, before we had our processes really properly right. We've got a system whereby we add up all the points and we give these special awards out, one of which is Network of the Year. Right. It's a really, really big deal for the networks, right? They, they, it's a huge deal for the networks. And at the time, currently we have PwC and a whole bunch of lawyers looking at our results and verifying our results. And we triple check them four times with four different groups of people to make sure they're right. But at the time of this incident, I just had a tech guy doing it on right. his own. right. And the results came through that DDB had won Network of the Year, and it was the first time that DDB had won for a long, long time. There was a wonderful man who you might know called Bob Scarpelli, who was, sure, the, of course. who was the global CCO at the time. And I rang Bob and I said, you know, it's great news. You know, you've won Network of the Year. And he was almost in tears. And he organized immediately a party on the beach for all his clients that were in Cannes and all his people that were in Cannes. He said, I'm going to keep it quiet. But after it's announced, I'm going to have this big party and I'm going to invite everyone to a secret party. I think I know where this is going. And then the tech guy came in a few hours later and said, Phil, I've got something to tell you and it's not very good news. And I said, as long as it's not about Network of the Year, I literally don't give a fuck what you're going to tell me, as long as it's not about Network of the Year. Right. And he said, I've calculated the, the figures wrong. DDB didn't win, BBDO won. That was, I can't tell you, it sounds like not that much, but Matt, for those guys, it oh, was Oh, they must have been crushed. Hell. It they was must have hell. been crushed. And I rang Bob. He was, as ever, as you can imagine, generous, gentlemanly, wonderful about right. it. Right. But that was the worst phone call I have they ever lost, had to lost make. to their first cousin. Yeah, because if, if someone drops out or if, if a piece of scenery falls down or something, you know, you can get over that. But this was people's right. really right. their human. lives. It's very they, human. They cared so much about that shit. You know, it was really, really Phil, hard. What, what, what in all your years, 12 some odd years running can, and you can pick an example from one of your other shows if you like, but what was your biggest surprise? I think, I think it's a, sometimes the speakers are outrageously wonderful and surprising. So one year, I don't know if you've ever had Monica Lewinsky you well, may have not. Done. Yeah, you certainly know who she is. So yeah. she came. So she, she. So she hadn't been really very public, and it was this was like four or five years ago. And she, her pitch to us was, I was the first trolled person before social media even existed. Right. And I want to talk about what, it, how, how we've got to protect people. Because now there's social media, it's a million times worse. It was bad enough for me, there wasn't even social media. So it was a quite an interesting thought, this idea. And I don't know about you, but I don't get much time to see the speakers at Cannes. Yeah, very rarely. Very rarely. But this particular occasion, I thought, I'm going to go and just watch the beginning of this, because it could be quite interesting. And she got up and she was brilliant. The, the delivery... The thoughts, the, the, you know, the construction of her speech was just flawless. And 45 minutes later, I realized I was still standing at the back of the auditorium, just transfixed. And it's moments like that when you think it might be good, but it turns into real gold. I, right. I, I love that sort of, that sort of what thing. Was, who disappointed you? Well, the one I always quote the word is, um, can I mention the name? I suppose he won't care. But uh, the one we expected to be brilliant and unfortunately wasn't was... Ben Stiller. 
And he, yeah. he sort of fell was that in, with Yahoo. It was with Yahoo, and yeah. it kind of fell into that category that I'm sure you completely get, which is people were really, really looking forward to it. Right. So therefore, their disappointment if it didn't deliver was X times right. bigger. Right. And so, you know, did he just not want to be there? Because that can happen with people like that. Yeah, he. I don't think he'd been particularly well briefed. I think that was the basic problem. You know, I won't go into the details, but it just wasn't quite what we wanted it right. to be. How about you? Who's disappointed you or, or delighted you on the stage? Well, on the I, 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 you know, I go back. You know, early. I remember the second year we had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talking about. He had a, a charity called River Keepers, which was very involved in cleaning up the Hudson River. There was a lot of politics years ago where GE had really polluted the Hudson and resulted in all kinds of litigation and settlements. And he talked about how in the uh, Reagan administration and in the Bush administration that the Environmental Protection Agency was run by litigators who were defending the worst offenders to the environment. And this was before climate change was a topic. So to hear about uh, so much of the regulations that, you know, protect our earth can be, you know, gutted with a black magic marker or Sharpie, you know, over regulations was really enlightening and, and obviously, you know, somewhat disheartening, but very memorable mm. because that was, you know, 14, 15 years ago. And I, I still remember it. I think hearing people like Al Gore you know, is really endlessly inspirational and people that have, you know, taken on these real issues. You know, the Emma Stone reference earlier mm. today, you know, her mom was there, her aunt was there, her brother was there. It was the first time she had spoken publicly, you know, about her challenges. And so that was really something. You know, early on we had Lorne Michaels mm -hmm. who created Saturday Night Live and, yeah. you know, is responsible for so much, you know, of our pop culture in the States. So that was, you know, really terrific. I think the ones who don't want to be there, you know, there are some who are, are just difficult to manage. Yeah. We've been doing D.L. Ugly's podcast on race the last couple of years in New York, and D.L. and his team are phenomenal. This year they had T.I., who was a big rapper. We actually had him perform at one of our concerts years ago. And our production team is really crackerjack. Our global team is actually led by the English team. There are our A production team all around the world. That's uh, as it should be, Matt. They do a that great job. Alex Absolute be. and Alex Parmy. Uh, <laughs> they do a fantastic job for us all over the world. So I went downstairs to the green room, and all of a sudden, the big stage, the target stage, was a little behind. I'm like, why are we behind? And T.I. was in the green room with his entourage, and they went, they said, T.I.'s waiting for his shirt. And I opened the curtain, and he's wearing a shirt. And I said, you look pretty good. Mm -hmm. And they were waiting for a shirt, and then a garment bag appeared. And I said, is this the shirt? No, that was someone else's shirt. And they were having pizza, and they just weren't moving. And I went in a second time and, you know, just asked really nicely if he could, you know, we'll keep the pizza hot for you. If you want more pizza, we'll get you more pizza. We'll get you another shirt. And he finally agreed to go on stage. But I think some people, you know, have a, he wasn't going to go till he was ready and didn't really care yeah, that yeah. there was a schedule and other people <laughs> involved. Yeah, exactly. So those moments, or when somebody drops out, you yeah. know, we had a tough one a couple of years ago in London where Ray Davies was supposed to be the guest in a conversation at a dinner we were doing at Abbey Road on a Wednesday night. And on a Tuesday, about five o'clock, we were doing a dinner that we were at Kensington Palace and I was in the 
beautiful part of the palace on the king's side. And I got a call from Ray's wife, Alma, that Ray couldn't make it the next night. And that's not a lot of time to line up somebody. But you learn to take bad news well. Yeah, yeah. And I threw 10, you know, fishing rods into 10 different lakes, knowing I had to catch one fish. And, you know, Lance and I, he had a few fishing rods in a few lakes. I had a few fishing rods in a few lakes. And we caught Brian Ferry. Oh, well, that'll do, won't it? And it sure did. And he was (laughs) phenomenal. So you learn to take bad news well and to move quickly. But listen, Matt, you've got your event coming up. I've got my two events coming up. Wish us both well. I hope hope, uh, uh, Europe goes as well as you hope it will. And thank you. Hope hope to see you at Cannes. I mean, you didn't make it didn't come last year, did you? Know, you? You're going to try I, and listen, make I it? Lo- I, love, I love your event. I love being there. You know, I'm not entering. I have no chance to win any. We are ineligible to <laughs> enter and win any awards. You know, very thankfully, with six advertising weeks around the world and, you know, plans to grow further and some of the other things we're having, you know, I haven't made it in a, in a while. I think once in the last six or seven years. I love it. It's not for lack of desire, Phil. <laughs> right. Well. So. Good luck with good luck with everything, and thanks for thanks for the chat. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog, or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. <laughs>